so much more than just a king you are more than everything so much more than a perfect day you are more than i can say and my words just fail me when i think of where i might have been if you had not changed my way you are more than to point your attention back here to the awesomeness that is Mel's beard. <laughs> if you can see that, that is pure awesomeness right there. <laughs> I want you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning.
Everybody, I gotta ask you a question about the first song. You yes. wrote that. Yes. Well, when you wrote, did you write that to perform or to s or congregational singing? Um, I don't remember. It's more than these. Is not the name of it. More than all these. Because my favorite part is in the middle when you go. Summer's afternoon. <laughs> I just love that. I just, I just love like that. I can see it in my I head now. And I'm leaning over every time I leave out, lean over to Annie, and I go, I know this is a great song, but I only know one line. When I wrote it, I just wanted to see people's faces go. Well, I, you know, it's like, it reminds me of the Dr. Pepper commercials. Well, yeah. <laughs> I love it. You hit it every time, but I have to take a deep breath and really scream it out, at it's which my sweet. family and everybody around me is like, Dr. Pepper? Is that the Dr. Yes, Pepper guy? It it's so, so good. You are so gifted, but that is one weird part of the song, although it sounds good. You sound like John Denver, dude. I'm, I'm telling sure you. Listen, sure listen. Ma Rocky Mountain, do that. Rocky Mountain High. Not doing it. Okay. That had nothing to do with this morning's service. There's but we're glad you're here. You are the only <laughs> healthy people in East Texas, apparently. And it is so good to have you. Someone just coughed. Obviously, we lost one more. <laughs> but good morning. What, Merry Christmas. I, I hope you're having a good time and enjoying the season. It has felt like Christmas, hasn't it? The cold weather and all. And, uh, and, and you know, I know, I know when it gets down below 55, you all start freezing. This is fun. Put a coat on and walk the neighborhood. It's, it's a blast. We are in the throes of our Christmas celebration. I know we got lots of people sick. Some are traveling. Some are online. So I want to hit some things this week so that those who are watching or listening on the app hear what's coming up this next week. Uh, there is not going to be an adult Wednesday night Bible study or children as normal because we put on uh, the student ministry every uh, the uh, Wednesday before Christmas, always put on a big shindig, and it's over at our house. And so we'll be doing that for the sixth grade through the through the. Uh, 6th through 12th grade. Information is in there about that, but we will not have our normal Wednesday night services because of that. We will resume them the 3rd of January, the first Wednesday night in January, so keep that in mind. But as for this week, we have Sunday morning service at 9.30. That'll be our family Christmas. That is a very special morning because the only children's program we have is just the infants. Everybody else is in here. It, it'll last one hour. Uh, we have a sketch, lots of music and scripture and videos. It is a great morning. And then there's not some, there will not be Bible study after unless your Bible study leader tells you otherwise. And then uh, next Sunday night, 24th, Christmas Eve, from 6 to 6.30, and we keep it pretty much 30 minutes, is our candlelight service. That's a great opportunity to invite people in. Um, 
especially if you have family that come over and, and all. It's a great, it's, it's a good time to break dinner and dessert if you do a Christmas Eve dinner. So uh, plan on joining us next Sunday for our services. We're going to have a great time together. Uh, Steve and the staff will fill this room with candles for our Sunday night, and uh, it'll be a great time together. So lots of exciting things next weekend. The rest of this information in our worship guide you can read, so please uh, take your time to do that. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward, and uh, we will prepare for our offering. We are, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break this morning from our study in 1 Samuel. And uh, we, we talked last week about uh, uh, living royal and how Samuel had not done that, and his boys took it for granted, the, the, the responsibilities that God had given them as high priest. And we're going to talk about when God made us royal this morning, it's, it, and, and it's going to be a good time in the Word. And then next Sunday, a family Christmas, and the following Sunday, the 31st, I'm going to take uh, another rabbit trail and talk about what are the responsibilities of a royal life for a child of God. And, uh, and then we'll get back into 1 Samuel the first week of January. So uh, that was one by Jack, who is now sick because it was a disgusting sweater. So Jack is not here this morning. I think he's under the weather. That's what I heard. But, uh, you know, the sweater was ugly, but the individual on the sweater was awesome. It was, he was awesome. I had a few years ago gone to a toy store and they had a hat that looked like a papal hat and I put it on, a picture was taken and that reared its ugly head on somebody's sweater last week. So for those of you who went, <laughs> I didn't think it was funny. <laughs> but uh, anyway, back to Peppa, I keep hearing that. Sorry. All right, on a summer afternoon. <laughs> let's pray. Let's, for those of you visiting, I wish I could say it's different this morning. It's not. It's always like this. So, so let's, let's pray. Let's uh, turn our face to the Lord, and, and uh, we're going to have a good time. We're glad you're here. Lord Jesus, we do love you, and I thank you that we can gather every week as a family and, and uh, laugh together and celebrate and worship you and get into your word and learn from you, Father, and God, just, would you please change us from the inside out? And this morning, Lord, there, I'm not asking you to change us. I'm asking you to change the way we see ourselves. And uh, we need that, Father. Uh, we get depressed. We get discouraged. We get anxious. We, get, we just get so down. And, and, Father, it's because we don't realize how much you love us. How I, th this morning, Father, it, it's my prayer that people would grasp how hard you had to work to make us your kids. And that you were fully invested and fully committed to that. And I pray, Father, that as we sing and as we open your word, that our hearts would be lifted. And if there's somebody who does not know you that's watching on the internet or listening or in this room, that today would be the day of salvation. We do love you, Lord. And, and I, just, I just pray that we'd live thankful lives. So uh, take, take this morning um, the gifts that will be given, financial gifts as people give back to you. We'll be careful to use them for your glory. We pray you'd bless those that give. And, and uh, Father, bless all of us for, for, for taking time out to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.
child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yeah. 
time for their programming. <clears throat> In uh, recent weeks, we have looked together at the Jewish high priest Eli and his boy Hophni and Phinehas from 1 Samuel chapter 1 or chapters 2 and 3. As we looked at those, we, we learned together that although Eli was a decent high priest with an effective ministry, he was a lousy man of God. And even more so as it manifested itself in, itself in the raising of his son. In fact, as we were together and we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 3 last week, and we saw as God promised that he was about to remove uh, remove these uh, boys, including their, their lineage in the future, from ever taking the position of priest or high priest again. In fact, God sent, uh, God sent a prophet to warn him in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, this is what God said through Samuel about Eli being replaced. 1 Samuel 3, verses 10 to 14. The Lord came and he called, before, as before Samuel, Samuel the Lord said, and Samuel replied, Speak, your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm about to carry out all of my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. Eli and his sons were God's chosen servants tasked with serving the king of kings in the priests to stand between the people and their God. It was, it was a position of the highest royal importance between God and his people. But they took God and their responsibilities lightly, it tells us in chapter 2. And because of that, God was removing them from their royal task. They loved, now, don't, don't get me wrong, because this is really important. They loved the benefits of being royal. In fact, it tells us in chapter 2 that they had become fat off of the offerings that they had enjoyed. They, they lived in a great place, were taken care of without having to work outside of the, uh, outside of the ta tabernacle. They had enjoyed all that and become fat and old on them. But they were not faithful to the difficult tasks, to the responsibilities. And now they're being removed. And there was no earthly religious sacrifices that restore what was now being removed. And, and I wanted that last verse in there, verse 14, says, So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifice and offerings. There's a lot of reasons for this, but most theologians, and I mean a great majority of them, are not saying that they're going to hell. What they're saying is there's no way that their positions will be restored. They had been removed from these royal positions of priests. And we can talk about that if you're interested in that at a different time. You can even Google it because most theologians agree on that. The price for their self-centered living was going to be swift and painful. And their opportunity to repent and change and be restored was over at this point. But for this morning, I'd actually like us to take that section and, and, and take a spiritual sidebar. Because as we've been looking at this story, I keep getting asked the question, how could they give up so, so very much of a blessing in this life for selfishness? How could they do that? They were given so much by God, and they literally threw it away for temporary pleasures. One of the hardest things that we must do as God's ki uh, kids, as we study the scriptures together, is make sure that we keep everything within context. And I don't mean a small context. Um, one of, the, one of the reasons why there's so much controversy among doctrine, scriptural doctrine today, among churches, is because we don't take in mind what the context is being written. And I'm in the immediate context, 
the, who it's being written to, why it's being written, but even the larger context of all of Scripture. You know, the Bible is not a complicated book. It starts with the beginning, how God created it. It starts with how mess, man messed it up. And then it tells the story of God, God's plan to restore it and how man fails at trying to restore it himself. And then in the end, the end of the book basically tells us how God will finally restore all things. Because you do understand that, theologically speaking, if you are the child of God this morning, you have been saved. But you're still being saved. Uh, I'm going to say in a few moments this again to, to, to make a clear point. It is true that in God's eyes all sin is equal, but let me be clear, not all sin is equally devastating. A bad attitude is not nearly as damaging as adultery. Okay, now if somebody wants to argue that point with me, we, we, we can do that at a different time. My email address is jeff at cwbc.com. But it is much more devastating to people around you and yourself. Some sins, the scripture even addresses though, there are sins against the body. Uh, some things are more addictive. They're much more damaging. But you're right. In, the eye, in God's eyes, some sin, uh, all sin is equal. But in, in the eyes of man, not all sin is equal. And it is important that you remember that. I'm going to come back to that in a second because we've begun to, to actually kind of excuse, and I'm a grace guy, you know that. It's funny, for the first 11 years of my ministry, people mocked me because I was too grace-oriented, and now people think I'm legalistic. I'm not. I'm saying that salvation is through faith in Christ alone, and once you're saved, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's given you as a guarantee, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, of your eternal inheritance coming. But you could sure mess that up. Ask Samuel or ask Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. They were given, they were made royal, they were chosen by God, they're made royal by God's calling, and they messed it up and they and they squandered it, and they're removed as a result of that. God would raise up another, and that was last week's message, wasn't it? A twelve year old boy gets raised up, a little boy who had never heard from God. And I know I'm starting to preach last week's message, but it's really significant you understand this. God took an old man who had heard from God and knew that Eli was hearing from God. How did he know that? Because he himself had heard from God. And he replaced it with a 12-year-old boy that the passage actually said, has never heard from God before. And it's God's way of saying, I don't need you, I want you. For those of you who grew up in the church being told that if you screw it up, that how will the people hear and how will it mess up? I want to make it clear, God will find another way. His task is never, ever, ever thwarted by our free will. Having said that, he invites you to participate with him. He invites us. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about the fact that God doesn't need you. He wants you. And between the two, I'd rather be wanted than needed. And that's how it is. And we were, and, 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 and uh, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas took that amazing experience and opportunity, clearly with hard responsibilities as well, difficulties, and they drop the ball. And because of that, God removes them. The context, though, is that we have to understand that Eli and his boys and what they do here is exactly the same sin that got us into the spiritual mess we found ourselves at birth and we find ourselves today. It's the same sin. My brother and I were talking about this this week, and one of the things that he likes to remind me, and for those of you who don't know my brother, he's a psychologist, and I tell him, you know, I'm so afraid that they're going to get bored of hearing the same message over and over again. And he said, well, you know, psychologists have studied and they found that you have to hear something 12 times for it to actually begin sinking in. Well, this is only the 70th time I've preached a message like this. So we're on, we're on track. At 120, we'll start to get it. But I want to remind you 
how humanity got into the spiritual mess in which she finds herself. And then today, as we move through, I want you to know how it is we ended up being royals despite our spiritual, uh, our spiritual dead state. Because you need to remember that this season. Next week, I'm not going to be preaching. And all God's people said, I hate you all. But, but the truth is, I, I really want you to understand that all this stuff, all the stuff around us right now, it is our holiday. No, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Quit being like that. We've hijacked the, the date. Yes, we use some, some secular things like Christmas trees, but it is our holiday where we as Christians take a time out. In America, it's between Thanksgiving and Christmas week to sort of celebrate the birth of Christ. But I want you to understand that I actually believe that Satan doesn't care if we say Merry Christmas as long as our hearts aren't merry over Christ's mass. The truth is, if we forget what I'm going to share with you this morning, and I think most of us don't forget it, we just don't, we've heard it so many times, we don't value it, this will be another busy season, which we like, but we miss. I, I, again, let me start by saying that what Eli and Hophni and Phinehas did are exactly what Adam and Eve did that got us into this mess in the first place. Let me remind you from Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now somebody in this audience is wondering if I actually believe this is literal or is it illustrative. I believe it's literal. How do you know? Because this is how people are and because God said it. So I believe this is literal. So snakes used to talk, apparently so. And don't act weird. I've lived in Texas for 12 years, and some of you think your dogs talk. So it shouldn't be that strange to you. So she responds in verse 2, Of course we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. Now slow down. I know you know where the story goes, but I want you to listen to how God describes her reaction. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its, tree, its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So, she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking in the, uh, about in the garden, so they did what anybody did when there's only two people that were created by the Creator does. They hid. That is exactly what Eli and his sons did. Exactly. One day, his boys were about to serve an offering. For those of you who have been with us, you're going to know what I'm talking about. One day, the story isn't in there, but it tells us what they did. One day, they were about to overlook the offering of a family, and they thought the daughter was hot, so they seduced her. He looked. Phineas told Hophni she's hot. Hophni says, she sure is. You don't have a chance. He goes, watch this. And he seduced her. She was beautiful, looked delicious, so he took her. 
Is that not exactly what Adam and Eve did? I need that. Yes, you do, Hoffman. And by the way, Phineas, she has a sister. Or how about the offering? I'm hungry. Well, they're not done cooking off the fat. That's okay. Let's send our servant to take it anyway. Should we wait till the fat is taken? No, I want it now. It's exactly what they did in the garden. They knew. They were clear. They repeated it to the serpent, but it, it looked desirable. It was beautiful. She, they, wanted, they wanted what it offered them. Is that not why we sin? I told God that if I had a Merry Christmas this year, I'd never sin again. Why are you laughing? Because it's a ridiculous prayer. Even the prayer shows my selfishness. Does it not? If you give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. Really? You see, something inside of Adam and Eve and Hophni and Phineas, I just love those names, and, and Eli, something inside of those people and us says, I know God's good and I like worshiping him and I like going to the temple and I like all the things. I mean, they enjoyed walking with God in the cool of the day. They enjoyed all the stuff he offered. They just thought that there was more available to him. I mean, they wanted something they felt would make their lives better. And I'm referring to Adam and Eve and Hophni and Phineas and, and Eli and us. And they made a decision. They would rather ignore God's clear instructions to them and do their own thing for their own sake because they wanted to. It's the same sin. Because they wanted to. We can certainly say that, that what Eli and his sons did was way more damaging. I've already mentioned that. Because they were seducing young women. There's no question. I mean, how can you compare eating a forbidden fruit with taking somebody's daughter or seducing somebody or even raping it in furs at times? How can you compare the two? Well, let's be clear. If you're talking about a human perspective and the damage it does, you're right. The two aren't comparable, but we're not talking about human. This is a mistake we make. Please understand, sin isn't what other people think about what you do. Sin is what God thinks about what you do. Might I remind you of that in a culture that says that, you know, why do we take sin so seriously? My brother was talking to somebody recently that he's working with, and he mentioned sin, and they said, oh, I haven't heard that word in a long time. You know why they didn't hear the word in a long time? They don't talk about it in church anymore. You see, the truth is we still sin. Thank God for grace. Yes, I'm saved, but I am being saved as I submit my life to the Lord, and I do things His way. He saves me from the ramifications of sin as I stay faithful to my wife, or faithful to you, or faithful to God. But the minute I step out, I am ceased to be, I'm not being saved from the damages and ravages of sin, and that's what happened here. But one day, you guys, one day soon, I will be saved. You see, salvation has three parts to it. It is justification, that happens at the moment I accept Jesus Christ's offer to forgive my sin. Then there's sanctification, which is right now, and that's constraining myself, setting it aside, acting like a royal. We'll get into that in two weeks. On the 31st, I'm going to preach royal responsibilities. I mean, it, it, it's me choosing to live like a royal, even if the fruit looks delicious. Choosing to live without the fruit that I think will make me wise, because God said stay away from it. Knowing that one day soon I will be glorified. That's that moment. That's that moment in time when I go home and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's over. You'll never have to battle with this thing again. We have to remember that, that the Christian life isn't a, it, it isn't a complete thing at the moment of salvation. It's the beginning of the complete thing. My position is secure, but my level of joy and dependence on him is really dependent on whether or not I believe in him still. Trust him. Believe that he has what's best for me. So, what happens with Adam and Eve is the same thing with, ha with what happened to Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. 
they wanted something they felt would make their lives better, and they made a decision. They would ignore God's clear instructions and do their own thing for their own sakes because they simply wanted to. But here's the craziest part of this story. After Adam and Eve chooses to do their own thing, and I want to remind you that when Eve is talking to this lizard serpent thing, she actually explains exactly what God said to them. Don't look at it. Don't even touch it. Let alone eat it, because if you do, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. She knows the instructions. A lot of us like to say, well, God told Adam, so he's culpable more. He's culpable more because he should have been protecting his wife. But the truth is, together they chose the fruit over obedience. And at that moment, everything changed. What changed, Pastor? Well, the first thing that changed was they hid from God. I want you to understand that they've been naked the whole time. I know that's hard for you to imagine, but they were. They were naked the whole time, from the moment of creation. And there were only two of them in the garden at this time, Adam and Eve. And then their creator, who formed them out of the dirt of the ground. Every part of their being was created like the perfect designer of a sculpture. He created it. says he, he formed them from the dirt, Adam, and he breathed life into them. They were formed, every part of their body. There wasn't a part of their naked body that he had not created with his hands. But what does sin do? Separate. They hide from him. They hide from him. That was the first cost of sin in the garden. Hiding, separation, broken relationship, lack of trust. And why did they hide? Because they hated God? No, they don't hate God. They like God. They like his garden. They like his provision. They like to, to name the animals. They were having fun with things like hippopotamus. They liked all those things. They just didn't think he had their best interest in mind, so they ate, and that immediately broke them. But what does God do? Pay attention. So the Lord God comes, and he's walking with them in the cool of the day, or walking in the cool of the day, to meet with them. And then at a daily walk they had, verse 9. Then the Lord God called the man, Where are you? Now you understand that God knows where they are, right? This is like what you do with your four-year-old kid when they're hiding in the corner, like this with their back towards you. Because they think if they can't see you, you can't see them. God approaches them not as an angry lion, but as a daddy coming to walk with his creation. If that doesn't tell you how incredibly in love with them God was, if you, look, too often we let the world tell us how mean our God is. How could a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God not annihilate them at this moment? They not only said, no way, we know better. They told, they, I mean, this, this is a level of disobedience that you and I have probably, most of all, have never had from our kids. Our kids can twist the truth. They can, they can deceive. But to actually say, God said, don't eat this, or you said, don't eat this, and actually go against us and steal the car or eat the cookie, that's a whole new level of rebellion. You know what I mean? That's absolute 180 degrees opposite of what they were told. And yet God comes still in a gentle way, and he says, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. I, I do that because I think that's what he must have sounded like. I, I mean, Adam, Adam excuses, well, we, we don't want you to see the nakedness that you created with your fingers. I don't want to get graphic, but you do realize that God formed them out of the dust of the ground, right? Every part of the man's body. Foot, toes, fingernails. I think I'll put little nails there. And then he breathed life into him. And just like in a crazy 
science fiction movie, man comes out of that. that. That dust thing starts walking. God knew every part of his being. But men are so silly, like three-year-old boys who have just stolen a cookie. We didn't want you to see us naked. We were afraid. And God's response is, again, unbelievable. Who told you you were naked? What a great question. There's only three of them. Uh, five of them. The Trinity and then the two of them. I'll add that. For those who are obsessed with Trinitarianism, Zach Wilson. Five of them. And three of them form them out of the dust of the ground. I mean, it's an incredible story, and I, I, I know I'm belaboring it. You're like, it's going to take six weeks to get through this. But I want you to understand just how gentle and patient God was. God wasn't patient and gentle like a daddy. He was gentle and patient like a great-grandmother. Oh, sweetie, you shouldn't have done that. He approaches them in this, in this incredibly gentle way. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now, everybody reads that angry, but I don't think God is angry. I think God is not even taking a survey. I think he knows. He's doing exactly what you do when your kid steals a cookie. Did you eat that cookie I told you not to eat? Now, if your attitude is, did you eat that cookie I told you not to you're in for a long parenting trip. But because you love your kids, you know, I kind of expected you. Just to be clear, um, God didn't create sin, but he expected it. I can't tell you why, how all that works out in God's economy, but it tells us before the world was even formed, he had already in his mind put a plan in place to redeem us. He knew we would. I think too often we expect or we treat God like he's reactionary in everything that happens. Like he goes, oh, now I'm going to have to send my son to die on the cross for you, you bunch of boobs. That's not God. God's having a conversation with them, not out of ignorance, but out of full knowledge of what they've done and a desire to, well, let me read. Then the man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me fruit, and I ate it, and all God's men said, Yeah, she's the problem. Why is it funnier when I say it to women about men? Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? Well, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And all God's women said, It's the snake's fault. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you're cursed. More than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And some crazy people will put you in a pen and put you around their neck and have pictures taken. But beyond that, I'll put enmity between you. I added a little bit of that. You can go back and read it for yourself. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head uh, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain. Please notice not create pain, but sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. That's not a sexual desire. It's a battle of the sexes. You know why you and your husband don't get along? Start in the garden. And men, if you think that it's a result of the fall, what it is is a result of a lack of trust. Why should they trust us when they're having a conversation with the serpent, that it's telling the serpent what God said, and the husband doesn't have the courage to say, you're not eating that today, honey. You're not eating that today. We don't disobey God. Today, you're going to do what I say. But he didn't. So why should she trust him? She shouldn't. Verse 17, And to the man he said, Since you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. As you do your budget for the end of the year, now you know why the two don't marry well. 
It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you eat of its grain. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from the dust, and to dust you will return. Code, you're going to die, dude. You're going to die. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. So let me jump through this real quick, because I want to take you to where I really want to get to today. God went looking for them, knowing that they had disobeyed. Why? Because he wanted to cover and atone for this sin while they waited for him to take care of the real problem. At the end of this story, God actually kills an animal and he covers, the word in Hebrew is atone for, he covers their nakedness. Because that was their, that was their initial feeling problem. God even takes care of our feeling problem. The, the manifestation of our disobedience. The real problem with, with this now was that God and man were at war. They weren't, they weren't together anymore. They weren't family. That family role had been broken by men re re rejecting God. But then there was a physiological ramification of it, and that was nakedness. And so Victoria's Secret is created by the death of an animal. We all know that a little bit of coverage is better than no coverage at all. It's just how it is. Why? Because when you're completely naked, you are vulnerable. Very, very vulnerable. And I want you to know, Christian brothers and sisters, that Satan has a vested interest in you not sharing your sins with your spouse. Why? Because you're not sure if they'll use them against you in the next fight. You see, the reality is that God gave you your spouse to help you become more Christ-like as you become vulnerable and stand naked before each other. But I would say that most Christian marriages, I counsel, have a problem because both couples are lying to each other. They're still covering themselves with fig leaves of lies to make themselves look better. And when one sins, they don't take responsibility any more than Adam and Eve did. They just blame the other person. Well, if you weren't such a jerk, I wouldn't have to find another girlfriend in the first place. It may be true that she's a jerk, but it doesn't give you the right to break your vows, right? But we do ex excuse each other. You see, the thing is that at the end of the day, even in the church, we have this belief that we deserve happy joy or happy, uh, good feeling, warmth all the time. And I got news for you, that was never found in Scripture. This is a difficult war that we're in. Difficult. And we have to trust that God has a plan that's better for us, but we really don't trust God. We know Him too well to trust Him. Because sometimes God doesn't do what his kids want him to do. He allows us to be burned at the stake or sawed in half. If you read you know, Hebrews 11, sometimes he allows us to get cancer. Actually, the death rate of Christians is the same as the world. Did you know that? And it doesn't matter if you're 90 or 19, it's always untimely. Our thing about God is we think that God, you know, it, we, we, we play a game like if I give myself to God, he's not really trustworthy because he'll let things happen to me that I don't want to happen to me while I'm living in this life because YOLO, you only live once. And the church is buying into the same lie as the world. You see, we have a trust crisis. We've always had a trust crisis. Now, don't get me wrong. When you look at Phineas and, and, and Eli and, and Hophni and you look at Adam and Eve, they really didn't trust God with their decisions. And they wanted to be pleased. They wanted to please their bodies. They wanted to please their eyes. So they live that way. Oh, wait a minute. That's exactly why we sin, is it not? The problem was, the problem for Eli was, though, that his sin devastated all of his children. None of his kids would ever, ever sit on the priestly throne again. Oh, wait a minute. That's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. In fact, Romans 5.12 says this. Look at Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, Sin into the world. 
Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Eli's sin cost his children the future place in God's royal temple. Adam's sin cost all of their biological children their personal relationship with God. They broke it the day they ate, and we are in trouble because of it. Everybody's born in that problem. But with all that bad news, there was good news for Adam and Eve that they, had, they were clueless about. In fact, put Genesis 3.15 up there for me, Kip. Because actually, if you're not careful, you'll read right by this verse because it's kind of hard to understand. There's so much deep theology in this verse, we could spend weeks on it. But I'm just going to tell you that basically when God says to Eve or to the serpent, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, at that point, he's referring to Jesus. It's the first time in Scripture that the prophecy is laid. Now, it doesn't say Jesus, but we now know looking back that that's who he was talking about. Because Jesus was bruised by Satan's temptation. Jesus was, uh, his, his uh, foot was bruised by life, the pain of life, all of those things. But on the cross, Satan's head was completely crushed. His power, his authority over him. So God promised Eve and the serpent and Adam, as they stood there that day, I've already got this taken care of too. And in case you're kind of blurry on all this, I want to remind you that this isn't the only time in Scripture this happens. If we were to jump in, in Easter, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, but I want to remind you the night before Jesus is betrayed, he's sitting at the table with all the disciples, and he says, I have to leave. And remember, they freaked out. Where are you going? Because they're all at the table arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And now God says he's going to leave and die? Where are you going? And Peter, being the mark of the group, the loudmouth guy who speaks before he thinks often, says, I will go with you wherever you go. And Jesus says, oh, yeah? And he goes, I will die for you tonight. And Jesus kind of leans over to him with a smile on his face and says, dude, before the sun comes up tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. I will never do that. Oh, yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. But don't worry, Peter. I'll see you in a week in Galilee, and I will have taken care of that. Go read it. It's one of the new te coolest stories in the New Testament. He actually tells Peter that he's going to take care of it, and when you see me, you're going to see me later in Galilee, and it's going to all have been taken care of, because Jesus knew before he died that Peter would sin, and he will already have forgiven that sin on the cross that takes place hours after Peter denies him, before they even get a chance to get back together. That's how good God is. If you're not getting the under-message of this, it's that God wants so bad to have a relationship with you. He's going to plan it before we sin. He's going to plan it while we sin. He's going to take care of it after we sin. And he's never, ever going to divert from it. His plan is to... Well, actually, you know what his plan is? John 3, 16a. I want you to read that with me. It's out of King James, so you'll remember it. For God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son. Can we do that again? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Stop. Forget the rest. Take a deep breath. What's that say? He loves us. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That's what this is about. This is about God loving the world so much that he didn't have to do this, but he was committed to it. The same God that should have just destroyed the garden, should have just destroyed these people and started over, doesn't destroy them and start over. In fact, he goes and chases them. Do you see the chasing in Genesis chapter 3? It's God going, where are you guys? We're in the bushes. 
Why? Because we're naked. Who told you we're naked? I mean, God has an act, a, a play in three acts in Genesis chapter 3. So he can get them to the point where he says, don't worry. Hey, serpent, you may win this war today, but you are going to lose this battle. That's, by the way, what he's saying in that text. You may win a few, but you're going to lose the important ones. And this is that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God did not merely send Jesus, though, just, just to hang out. I, I fear that we have heard this verse so often that it doesn't move us anymore. It doesn't move me. I mean, this verse actually says that God loved the world, all of us, red and yellow, black and white. Remember that song? He means it. That's right. Red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, of every political and sin persuasion. He loves us so much that he gave his son. You can be a communist. You can be a Bernie Sanders fan. You can even like Trump, and God loved you that much to die on the cross. In fact, he's so crazy, he sent his son for Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump. So there's less Donald Trump haters here than more Hillary. I mean, I could hear it by the gasp. Those of you who don't like Hillary laughed when I said Hillary, and those of you who don't like Trump went, hold on, better not say that too loud. And the truth is that God so loved Adolf Hitler that he gave his only begotten son. John Wilkes Booth, General Lee, even the Custer dudes, he loved them so much, he gave his son for them. Whether they receive it or not is up to them. But the fact is, God loves them. God loved Adam and Eve. God loved Hophni and Phinehas. He loves the world. And what good would giving us a son do? I mean, this is a fair question. Okay, so he gave us a son. Born, isn't that nice? What, what good does that do? Fortunately, we have the answer for that too, and that's Ephesians 1.5. God decided in advance. Okay, pause. You know this. You know where I'm going. But would you just take a breath because I want to make it clear that as effective as Billy Graham and other evangelists have been, the reason God sent Jesus is not to keep you out of hell. That's a side product. This is the reason that God sent Jesus. This is the reason that Christmas took place. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. There's only one creation in all... Creation is not a creation. There's only one in all of eternity, one person that has the right to please himself, and that's Jehovah God. And do you know what pleases him? To redeem Adam and Eve. He high-fived himself. And to save you. To save you. Some of you last night look at porn. Some of you yesterday were with your girlfriend that you're not married to. Some of you last night were hating on your husband. Some of you yesterday did stuff that nobody knows but you and the person you did it with or you in the deep places of your heart. And I'm here to tell you that he came out this morning and said, where are you? Oh, that, he can't be talking to me. He hates me. He doesn't hate you. He's still chasing you. Every scripture you read throughout the scriptures, yes, God disciplines those who are his children, but he chastens those whom he loves, and he loves the whole world we just learned. This this is an amazing passage because we begin to realize that God chose to bring us to himself through Jesus Christ, not just so that we can hang out with him or be religious, but because he wanted us adoptable. That's why he sent Jesus. God did not merely send Jesus to do nice things, to teach about caring for each other, to heal the sick or make the blind see, or to even keep you from getting divorced. Can I just say that? That's not why Jesus came to teach on divorce. He did not come to teach on good parenting. He came to tell you that if you are a lousy parent, a divorcee of seven times, if you hate people, he loves you. He loves you. 
so much that he will play parent with you. What are you doing? I'm just trying to live. I'm not happy. I'm drinking myself to death. I'm just, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. Why are you doing that, sweetheart? Let me take the bottle. Come here, give me the bottle. He would never touch a Jack Daniels bottle. Oh, he would. He'll take it right out of your hand. He loves you. He loves you. And maybe you're watching. We have a group of people that watch every Sunday on the Internet. Why? Because they can't go to church. The church may hate you, but God does not. God does not. You have not outsend his love, his grace, and his chasing. Because as we look back at this story of Genesis 3, he was chasing them. You, you want to know what Christmas is about? Look at Hebrews 2.17. Look at this verse. This, is, I don't, this needs to be the ultimate Christmas verse. Therefore, it was necessary for him to me, be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Just leave that up there, Kip. Look at that. That's the ultimate Christmas verse. It isn't Mary had a little lamb. It's this. This explains why. We obsess over the story, and I want you to know that Satan wants you to obsess over the story. You know, the manger scene, silent night, and that's fine, but we stop thinking that after that. This is why it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters. Wait, wait I'm not his, I'm his child. I was adopted into his family through his blood. I'm, I'm his kid. I'm not his brother and sister. That's not true. It was his father's plan to adopt you, which makes Jesus his only begotten son, and you the adopted son or daughter. In other words, you aren't just an heir to God's throne. You are a joint heir with Christ. And everything Christ gives is equal, gets is equally given to you and I. We aren't pretending to be royals. We are royals. If you think Jesus Christ is royalty, so too are you. Because he is your brother. We, we have let Satan rob us of this truth. We're so busy not going to hell, we forget that it's about what we were given. And we weren't given heaven. That's our home. We were given adoption. Adoption. Now look at this. In case you think I'm making this up, and I know you don't because you trust me, but look at Galatians 4, another Christmas passage. But when the right time came, somewhere around 3 AD, when that star was just perfectly shining, and the census was called for, and just about the time that, that, that Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem and pulled the hay over themselves for a night's sleep. At just the right time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, subject to Mary. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's incredible. Why? God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. Ready? So that what? It has nothing to do with hell. That's like saying the best part about being healthy is I don't have to sleep in a hospital. That may be true, but that's not why you want to be healthy. You want to be healthy so you can enjoy life. I mean, it's nice not being in a hospital, unless Mel is your nurse with those things in his hair. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice not being in a hospital, but that's not why he died on the cross. He did not die on the cross so you could go to heaven. He died on the cross so you could be his kid, a joint heir with Christ royalty so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Verse 6 in, in Galatians 4. And because we are his children, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Daddy! 
Abba. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you were his child, God has made you an heir. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God sent Jesus to crush Satan's head by paying the price that had to be paid for our sin so that his real plan or desire could, be take, could take place. And that real plan was to adopt us into his family, to make us kids of the king of kings, to make us... What does that make us? If you are the daughter or son of a king, what are you? Royal. In every aspect. It's not a metaphor. It's not an example. It's not an illustration. It's not to make you feel better about yourself. It is a fact. In fact, the fact that you're royal is going to be a real challenge to your life. Because most of us don't want to be royalty. Most of us want to be Margaret. About eight of you have watched, have watched The Crown. Now look, I'm not advocating everything The Crown does, but if you watch it, you realize there was a real cost to the person sitting on the throne. Responsibility for that. Now, if you choose to abdicate your responsibility, you can go live in Paris for the rest of your life, doing nothing. And now you have most Christians. Most of us are just happy we're not going to hell. Most of us are just happy we're just saved, forgiven. Most of us don't actually want to live on the throne. Why? Because if we actually act like royals, there's royal responsibility. Back to that on the 31st of the month before we take communion. So that's my challenge to you in 2018. Live like a royal. Well, I thought I was saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You are. And you're free to destroy yourself and your family and the reputation of Christ. Those are all your freedoms. You can do that. And you'll still die and go to heaven. But that's not the point, is it? The point is we are royal. And the world is desperate for somebody who actually believes what they claim. The world is desperately seeking anybody who actually believes in this stuff. You know, the problem with Christmas is that the day after Christmas, you've got to pay the Christmas bills. The problem with Christmas is that you may be really depressed and having a difficult time, for, but for a few days, maybe a few weeks, we feel really good about it, and then all of a sudden when Christmas is over, we go back into our depression, and I'm here to tell you that if you understand what Christmas is about and you embrace it, it changes how you view Christmas. Christmas isn't about, and I know, and, and I love these things too, but Christmas isn't just about shopping and, and food and, and celebrating um, a stuff and people. There, there's a place for that, and I think it's a valuable place in society for our, our culture that's so filled with hate to slow down for one month and be nice to each other. I think that's very valuable. But as children of God who are royals, we get to finish the sentence. But in order to finish the sentence, let me tell you why Jesus Christ brings peace on earth. We've got to know it for ourselves and believe it. We've got to believe this stuff. Well, I do believe it. I, I know kind of like Hophni and Phinehas, but we ought to really believe it. Embrace it. Well, I don't want that life. Neither did they. Neither did Adam and Eve. Actually, Paul said it was difficult. But we are the royal children of God. And, and, and look, this thing we're in the midst of celebrating right now, it's, it's just the beginning of God's physical manifestation of enacting a scheme that he had planned before the world was even formed. It, it's, it's the physical manifestation of it starting. Galatians 4, I just read to you, when that right time came, God had a calendar, and it was perfectly set in action. And Jesus was born so that he could adopt us, according to Galatians 4. When we get frustrated and distracted this season over long lines or money or party schedules or what to do with the Christmas fairy tales with our children, oh, and we, give, we do give Jesus a few minutes of our time, we're missing the, the bigness of what happened there on that night back in the day. Let me remind you on, from Scripture, Matthew chapter 1. 
Joseph, the son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child that is already within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. That's how we say it. They would have said Yeshua, which Hebrew means salvation. Joseph, you are to call him salvation. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Everything about that night was all pointing to crushing Satan's head. In Luke chapter 2, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. And they were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. Today I'm bringing good news that will be of great joy to all people. All people, not just Jews, but all people. The Savior, the Savior, yes, the Messiah Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And when the angels are pronouncing it, they're not thinking Savior from hell. They're thinking Savior from what happened in the garden, that separation between man and God. Now you're covered with, with, with animals to cover your shameful nakedness, but God's actually going to make it so you can take those off again and stand firm in it. You don't have to be embarrassed of the flab or, or, the, or the things that are shameful before God. You don't have to because he's taking care of that. Remember when John sees Jesus coming up over the hill, he doesn't say, there's the atoning lamb of God. He says, that's the lamb of God, and this lamb is going to take away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was the first lamb ever pronounced that would remove sin, not just cover it. The problem with having your sins covered is they're still there. Jesus Christ removed our sin. That's why you can take off the lie. That's why you have joy. And I'm not just talking about those of you who are moral. I'm talking about those of you who are immoral. Those of you who have been playing the game. Those of you who have not been firm in your stand, who have not been living like a royal. You can know that God has still forgiven your sins and get back in the game this morning. Don't wait till communion. Do it now. Thank Him for His grace and walk with Him. Well, my family, they haven't seen me walk with God. How do I do that? Start by admitting you haven't been what you should have been. And invite them to go with you. Well, what if they won't? They're not going to. I'm going to tell you now because they don't believe you're going to. But this isn't about what we've done. It's about what he's done. And Christmas is the beginning of that. It's the beginning of God's promised fulfillment to us. And why does it matter? Listen to me. I, I, I want to tell you, I want to show you why it matters that God sent his son to adopt us. Why we are... We are not just people doomed for judgment. Romans chapter 8. It's going to be on the screen. Just listen to it. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. This is why being a royal matters. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children, making you royal. Now we call him Abba, or Father, for the Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we're God's children. And since we're his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, I need music behind me. Dun, dun, dun. What's the next line? I don't want to suffer. Newsflash. Nobody wants to suffer. But you're a royal. Nobody asks if you wanted to suffer or not. You're a royal. If our brother suffers, we should share in his suffering. And if we don't share in his suffering, Scripture says that maybe we're not royal. It seems to me that most of the church, and, and, and in general, even church's leadership today is trying to get us to be accepted by the world and not suffer as much as we can. We're trying to be as friendly as we can and nice as we can so we won't suffer. And I'm here to tell you that the reason we suffer has nothing to do with how we behave. It has everything to do with who our daddy is. 
You knew that, right? Yet what we suffer now, verse 18, is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believers also groan. Really? Yeah. Royal children groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too, sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Stick with me here. And when the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all, uh, all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that the Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them His glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as this? Even if you don't understand all this, I want you to realize that Paul wasn't sitting in a dark room going, oh, I'm so bored. What's point three of this thesis? He's actually overwhelmed with joy. What can we say about such wonderful things as all this? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since we did, he didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Nobody. He even answers his own question. Nobody accuses us. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then can condemn us? Nobody. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us right now. Can anything uh, separate us from Christ's love? And Paul, who never can, can finish a thought in simplicity like your pastor, says this. He goes crazy with his pen. Actually, I've seen the original script. He just starts writing smaller and smaller as he gets faster and faster. That was a joke. We don't have the original. Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sakes we're killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No is the answer to that question. It doesn't mean that. Just because your life stinks has nothing to do with God's love for you. Despite all of these things, overwhelming is victory. Uh, a victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced of this. That nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death or life, angels or demons, fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. How amazing is that? No power in the sky above or even on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Adam and Eve, Eli, you and I, Hophni and Phineas, uh, and whatever have certainly made a mess of things down here. As we continue to choose our own way over God's way, we continue to mess things up. 
And I believe that God is calling us to live like love. I believe it. And I'll make the case on the 31st. <laughs> Be a good week to miss, huh? Join me. I know you. I know you love God. But do you trust him? I don't always trust him. That's why I sin. If he doesn't give me the day I feel I deserve, I find something that makes me feel better about it. That's what I do. And don't leave me hanging. That's exactly what you do. If you're driving a long distance and you feel like going 75 in a 65-mile-an-hour zone, it's your right to do it, right? Oh, come on, that's not sin. Give to Caesar. I never speed. You're wicked. Or when my wife doesn't treat me the way I deserve to be treated. Now, that never happens in our home, but as if. I react because I don't deserve to be treated like that. Or how about if my church doesn't do things the way I think, or you can fill in whatever it is that you do because you feel like you deserve something better. I deserve a better job, do you? On whose, on whose scale? I mean, when did we decide? You know where I'm going. It's time to rise up, Lord. It's time to rise up. Christmas is great, but it's not about good food and family, and, and you know that. Those things are great. I love them. But it was the day in history, probably some say April, some say August, who knows. It would have been different depending on the calendar year, to be honest, because the Jewish calendar changed all the time. It was always, and now I'm going to stop because I'm going to get in trouble. But the truth is, you guys, that day, that night, that we call the silent night, and if you've had a baby, you know it wasn't very silent. That night, that's when God said, now. Now. Go get him, son. Make him a daughter. And that, my friends, is why the angels were, were screaming. It wasn't because he wanted people to go run to the manger. He wanted them to know that God had promised his, kept his promise and they were, for the next 33 years, going to watch him make them adopted ones. That's how you and I became loved. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This Christmas, don't forget, this was the beginning of that plan and promise being kept for you and for me. And if you are not royal, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ's offer to forgive your sin, let me add this, that on that cross, enough blood was shed for you too. Join us. It will be a difficult life. You will be giving up rights to control your life. But you will be adopted by the King of Kings into his family business, his family plan, and you will become a joint heir with, uh, with Christ for eternity. Why in the world would you reject that? It doesn't make any sense. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know why we give Christmas gifts at Christmas? Because God gave us the ultimate gift, Jesus Christ. Adoption. Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict those who need, who are not your kids, and you, you are calling to yourself this morning.
May they cry out to you and accept your offer to forgive them the ultimate Christmas gift. And for the rest of us, Father, please protect us from missing the point. I know that Satan doesn't care that we're religious, but he does care that we don't really think about what happened that day. Thank you for coming in the form of an infant so that you could understand what it was you were saving us from as our high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Bible study is going to start in about five minutes. If you would uh, like to talk with me, I'd love to share with you more about God uh, if you don't know him. Next Sunday morning, 930, and then next Sunday night, 6 o'clock. Have a great week, everybody.